Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back. We're finally going to sound a little bit normal this Mm -hmm. week. We're Mm -hmm. together. In the same room. In the same room. It's so exciting. You look so beautiful, Jen. Thank you. As do you. The last couple of weeks were a little rough around the edges. We realized that. We haven't quite mastered the recording separately. Distance recording. Nope. Virtual recording. Uh, uh, Whatever. We know some people are are doing that all the time and they're able to pull it off. Bless your souls. The whole dynamic is different. Because if I can't look at your face, like sometimes I miss, I realized there was something that you said, and I just totally skipped over the joke (laughs) that you made. I was just like, yep, uh uh-huh. I think it was about how we were going to have an episode 9 million blah, 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 like in 2065 when Chernobyl Mm -hmm. is finished getting cleaned up. Right. It didn't register. And I just was like, absolutely. (laughs) But usually if I know I'm going to say something funny or I think it's funny, I I get a look like, get ready for this. (laughs) This is going to be amazingly funny. I prepare myself. (laughs) Then there's laughter. Look, Megan, Megan, wait, it's coming. We had our Peace Corps episode last week. We have a new Patreon episode coming out for February. Uh, At the end of this episode, we'll be shouting out a new Patreon. So stick around for that. Megan, I have some amazing science news. I'm ready. Well, we get a lot of great messages on Instagram. They get lost sometimes, though. Instagram, these messages, you can't... You can't search them. So we'll be like, we know somebody told us this, and we're trying to find it, Mm -hmm. and it just... Come on, Instagram. Get it together. So I did spend a long time going through and trying to find things (laughs) that people had sent us and i came across listen i'll just say her instagram name is cheza from new zealand yay but she said that sand sharks are the only shark that can fart i was like oh that's interesting so i decided to check it out she is correct okay so according to people who know a lot about sharks shark people sand tiger sharks gulp air from the surface of the water and store it which it keeps them from sinking like their buoyancy yeah if you've ever seen them they'll just like hang out mm-hmm. they'll just like sleep or hang out in the water and you can see it like i don't know if you've been diving and seen it or you've seen it in an aquarium or on tv so this is their secret to not like going all the way to the bottom when they're ready to move on they expel that air in the form of a toot (laughs) when they want to lose some of that buoyancy and so for other shark species i guess some might do this but they don't actually really know and they say that generally sharks only use their oily liver for buoyancy oily liver these little sharks are like we found a better way we're gonna be less oily (laughs) they're like that's gross we're just gonna gulp a bunch of air and toot it out that's right because tooting is fun with that oily liver if they did suck in air that it would mess up their buoyancy even more they think that it's a unique trait to these sand tiger sharks I guess my question would be, uh, are there videos or is there evidence of the toots? Like, are there little bubbles coming up from their butt butts? I don't know. We should find out. But in searching for shark toots, I came across a book that was published in 2018 by ecologist Nick Caruso and zoologist Danny Rabayati. Cool. Um, And it's a book called Does It Fart? And it talks about farting habits or lack thereof of 80 different animals. I just figured that every animal farts because everybody poops. You would think. 
So go get the book and read it. I mean, it's like very interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, toot biology is very interesting. <laughs> the diet of the balsam pupfish, it's a freshwater fish found in northern Mexico, can lead to dangerous levels of gas. They feed on this algae and it can and inadvertently, they can eat the gas bubbles that the algae produces during warm temperatures. And that air inflates in the fish's intestines and distend its stomach. And it totally screws up the equilibrium and it makes it difficult for them to swim. So even if it tries to bury itself in sediment, which is, I guess, what these pupfish do, the air will make them resurface. And if they go to the surface, then they can get eaten by birds. If they don't toot, they're going to die. Tooting to live. Yes, it's survival toots, you know, either from predation or because the intestines will rupture. And That's a bad way to go. They also say that ferrets are little fart machines. I believe it. So they not only let them go when they're pooping, which I guess they poop a lot Mm -hmm. every couple hours, but they actually get really gassy when they're stressed out. (laughs) Same. I get it. (laughs) You're having a test in eighth grade. It's really quiet in the room. It happens. (laughs) Listen. I'm not saying from experience. I'm just saying... It's possible. So I guess they're also really stinky, which ferrets are stinky anyway. Because of their uh, musk pads. And they say that owners of ferrets, which I've dealt with a lot of ferrets in my day, back Mm -hmm. in the day. And they say that they reported confused looks on the pet's face in the direction of their (laughs) their butt butts. So wait, they fart, but they don't know that they're farting. They're surprised. They're like, wow. Was that you? They just blame it on each other? They just blame it on everybody around them. Um, I dated a guy who had two ferrets and they are very stinky, but they were really fun when they had bath time. They loved bath time. It was like exciting, which then reminds me of the Big Lebowski. When that guy brings a ferret, drops him <laughs> <Yeah>. in the <laughs> tub. <laughs> what does he call it, though? He calls it something. I think he called it a rat or a, or a weasel or a something weasel. like that. Yeah, yeah, I think he called it a weasel. Their fear response for ferrets mm-hmm. is screaming, puffing up, simultaneously farting and pooping. <laughs> in essence, if they toot and scare themselves, <laughs> oh, no. then it would cause the reaction. It's like a constant cycle of <laughs> it's like tooting a cycle. and fear. <laughs> Jesus, what a life. I know. They also talked about the whale farts because you can imagine right very large that they produce some of the biggest toots on the whole planet Mm -hmm. so their digestive system can hold to a ton of food and they have multiple stomach chambers they say they don't really have much evidence caught on camera but there have been scientists that have witnessed them and have reported them to be incredibly pungent that's a wall of smell do you know which animals don't toot really fancy ones octopus because they're aliens see is someone writing this down please (laughs) someone write all of this they are aliens conspiracy theory yeah um they don't toot but also other like sea creatures like uh soft shell clams or sea anemones birds also don't toot well they pee and poop at the same time though well they got a weird thing going on another one that doesn't the only mammal that doesn't toot are sloths oh according to the book if they have a stomach full of trapped gas it's dangerous for them so if everything is working normally the methane produced in their gut bacteria is absorbed into their bloodstream and then they breathe it out that's some halitosis right there and lastly there's also a wood louse do you know what a wood louse is i mean it sounds like a like a tick of some kind so the wood louse which i guess is like a little roly-poly-ish guy they also do not toot technically and they say instead of peeing and i like who who researched this (laughs) is that what you're 
How many labs do this research? Is it just one person? God bless. <laughs> God bless your soul again, whoever you are. Okay, instead of um, peeing, woodlice excrete ammonia through their exoskeleton with bursts at the same time of full body farts lasting up to an hour at a time. <laughs> so they just sit there and like vibrate, <laughs> vibrate farts out? Dudes. <laughs> what is that um they also said that really quick that termite toots are uh, actually a significant source of global emissions oh what yeah they say not as bad as cars or cows but they fart a lot and because they're so numerous like there's so many of them well they have a really fibrous diet that's why it builds up a lot of methane so each termite only lets rip about they say (laughs) about half a microgram of methane gas a day but every termite colony is made up of millions of individuals of termites all over the world wow so if you put it all together they produce somewhere between five and 19 percent of global methane emissions per year that's fun that's a fun uh, science news thank you so much yeah you're welcome everybody poops but not everybody toots who knew so megan was super secretive about her story today she's like don't read this message and don't (laughs) look at this and i was like fine so i have no idea what she's talking about yeah, actually, I was gonna talk about hyenas today. That was my original plan. I'm stoked about that. Please tell me you'll do it. In the future. Okay. Yeah. But then this message came up and I read it and I was like, oh, the story is so cool. Um, This actually came It's a listener suggestion from Angelina. Oh, hi, Angelina. Who's also a patron of ours. She shares lots of stuff. She has some cool dogs and we like Angelina. So she sent this story and it was from a Reader's Digest article. And I just want to say that I love Reader's Digest. We've talked about it. Yes. Those little tiny magazines. The best. Mm -hmm. So I immediately was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to tell you a little bit about a place, uh, Mount Washington State Park first, which is in New Hampshire. Okay. New Hampshire. Is this part of the AT? It is. Okay. There's a piece of the AT that goes through there. Got Mm -hmm. you. So Mount Washington State Park is a 60.3 acre or 24.4 hectare parcel of land. It is on the summit of Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and it is the highest peak. Mount Washington is the highest peak in the northeastern United States. Indigenous folks uh, used to call it or called it Kodak Wadjo, meaning the top is so hidden or summit of the highest mountain. The Abenaki Indians, I'm sorry, Abenaki Indians called it, I'm going to really mess this up, Agio Kochuk, meaning the place of the great spirit or the place of the concealed one. And they actually would never climb it because it's believed to be the home of the Great Spirit. What Great Spirit? Like the Great Spirit over okay. all the spirits. Uh, the Algonquins called it Wombic, meaning white rocks, because of the bright white glint coming from the high levels of mica that are in the rock. So it's like shiny. The European settlers or colonizers, they describe the mountain as, quote, daunting, terrible. (laughs) (laughs) The native people, indigenous people were like, look at how beautiful. And then here come the Europeans. Europeans are like, like, currently it is affectionately referred to as the rock pile. Well, it's creative. Giovanni de Verrazzano, Verrazzano, Mm -hmm. there we go, was the first European to see it. And he saw it from a boat in like a harbor nearby in in 15... (laughs) Habba. <laughs> he packed his his boat in the Haba and he saw it in 1524. Uh, Darby Field was the first European settler to climb it in 1642. And I'm almost curious to know if Darby Field was the first person ever to climb it since none of the indigenous tribes wanted to go up there because, because it, it was, was sacred. sacred. There were these early settlers, Abel Crawford and his son, Ethan Allen Crawford, which I don't know. You're looking at me and I don't know. Is it Ethan Allen, the furniture <laughs> thing? I have no idea. I'm like, hmm? 
Maybe, maybe not. They built the first footpath to the summit in 1819, and that is actually the oldest continuously maintained footpath in the U.S. to date. Interesting little fact. Super random. Uh, They actually worked on that path to make it good for horses. They finished that by 1840, and then in 1861, they opened the Mount Washington Auto Road, which was a carriage road to begin with. Now cars can go up it. It's a road road. And it was considered the first man-made tourist attraction in the nation. The Mount Washington Cog Railway is the world's first rack and pinion railroad, and it was completed in 1869. So it has a lot of firsts. Is everybody writing this down for Jeopardy? 100% these are Jeopardy questions. Yeah. Um, Sylvester Marsh is credited with being the builder of that railway. And when he initially petitioned the New Hampshire legislature for the right to build the the railroad, they were like, bro, Are you trying to build, quote, the railway to the moon? Like, it's going to be crazy. But they gave him permission and he built it anyway, I guess, because it seemed so high. Railway to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) It was like really funny and clever and 18, whatever. Yeah. There are a variety of habitats on Mount Washington. There's forests, uh, alpine summit, and then green river valleys in the lower regions. But mostly it is considered an alpine zone. So it's a very harsh environment for plants and animals to try to thrive in. There is an area called the Alpine Garden, which is about a thousand feet below the summit on the east side. It's like a protected shelf and little flowers will grow there. So just not a lot of vegetation. Not a lot of vegetation. Okay. Yeah, there are some, like I was saying, little tiny flowers that will pop up here and there in the summer. Uh, and then there are these weather stunted fir and spruce trees. And mm-hmm. it's, they're actually, there's a name for those kind of trees. Because on like one side, it's just like, it's like the tree has been blown by wind all the time. So on one side, there's like no leaves or, or needles or anything. And on the other side, they're kind of like leaned into the face of, you know, like however, whatever direction the wind would push them. But those trees are called... Crumholtz. Oh. Yeah. Any kind of trees that are in alpine areas that have that look are called Crumholtz trees. In terms of fauna, fauna, (laughs) on the higher elevations, there are some fox and rodents that will go up a little bit higher. At lower elevations, there's more diversity. There's red squirrel, moose, black bear, pine martens, black cap chickadees, and porcupine. Those are some of the common species that are down there. There's also wild ducks and geese that live in the forested areas. Oh, I love that they made the distinction that they're wild. <laughs> so more there's not frightening. Just, yeah, there's not just like some crazy mountain woman up there with like a bunch of ducks and geese raising them. Are you sure? I mean, maybe there is. Well, there was. <laughs> there was. There are humans who live on the mountain, uh, but only in shifts at the state park facility at the summit to keep the building in working order. There's also a weather observation station at the top of the Mount Washington Observatory that's at the summit and they have year-round people who live there and i don't know if it's still the case but at one time they had a cat named marty who lived with them at the observatory i love that the u.s forest service also employs quote snow rangers who monitor avalanche activity in ravines in the winter months and early spring and the appalachian mountain club amc hermit lakes shelters caretaker and another caretaker who stays at the harvard mountaineering club's Harvard cabin, which I guess might be more fancy. They also live up there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. There have been negative impacts from humans over the time that the colonizers started building stuff up until now. There are a lot of species that are listed as endangered up there, especially the um, flora, because just stepping on some of the alpine vegetation Mm -hmm. sets those plants back 
many years because you can imagine the harsh environment it's like the growth rate is not very good up there it tends to be pretty low yeah avalanches and landslides also occur on the mountain and those pose dangers to animals and humans mount washington in new hampshire is considered one of the most dangerous hikes in all of america really yes most avid mountaineers and hikers recognize that it is the most dangerous small mountain on the planet So more than 250,000 people visit Mount Washington each year. And over the time since, uh, what was that, 1840-something, there have been 161 fatalities. And that's more than half of the deaths that happen on Mount Everest. The reason it can be so dangerous is that the summit sits right in the junction of two jet streams that converge kind of on the mountain. And actually, the highest winds ever recorded on Earth, 231 miles per hour, were documented on Mount Washington in 1934. Just regular old wind. This is the kind of wind that will knock you off the side of the mountain. No, that's like tornado wind. Yeah. Even if you take the road up, so you can drive up to the summit and there's like the building is up there and there's like a gift shop. I don't know, whatever. You can buy a keychain. There's going to be fog and super cold temperatures year round. And then the Mm -hmm. wind is a big hazard. You have to prepare yourself for that. Where the gift shop is. Well, I think there's a gift shop. I I wonder if they sell wind chimes. (laughs) (laughs) So you know you're getting there because it's just like, wind chimes like (laughs) just going bonkers if they don't we should get in business with them and that would be the best we're like just hear us out (laughs) we have a great idea we're geniuses okay (laughs) that's wonderful but also because of these the junction of those jet streams it can be super unpredictable the weather it can change from minute to minute and it can be really severe it could be like really beautiful even when the weather observatory says like oh you know it's a good day to climb the mountain it could totally change Right. On paper, the hike is fairly easy. It's steep, uh, but it's only 4,000 feet and it's over about four miles and then back down. But you have to think about things like hypothermia because if you start at the bottom, it's like 70 degrees outside and then you go up to the top, it's like 30 or below. Mm-hmm. You have to pack for all different levels of layers. Weather. Layers. Layer is, it up. Yes. You got to mm-hmm. layer it up. A portion of the hike is above the tree line, so things that you would be worried about are exposure to wind, snow squalls, blinding whiteout conditions, pop-up lightning storms, fun, uh, or brutal sun. Wow. So why do you want to do this? (laughs) Why would you want to hike there? It's very beautiful if you're an avid hiker. Guys, you're going to die out there. (laughs) Listen. Listen. One of the most popular trails is along this place, Crawford Ridge. But this is actually an area where there's a lot of westerly winds, really strong westerly winds. And that's a place where a lot of hikers can literally get blown off course. Falls are super common in terms of like injury and also death uh, Mm -hmm. on the mountain. And the gusts have been known to blow unstable hikers down from the ridge into the Great Gulf or the Dry River Valley. Can you imagine you're like on a ridge and just wind (laughs) knocks you down? Do not take small children here. No. I'm reading this and I'm like, please don't. This Uh, might not be a good place for kids. It's like that. (laughs) but in a really bad way yeah winter weather conditions exist at the summit for most of the year and that makes it inaccessible especially in winter months most people go visit it in the summer yeah i saw a lot of of, uh, hiking videos and actually i did try to see if lost again with the gym had gone on a hike there but he said he has not been to new hampshire so when he goes i'm like i don't necessarily want you to go on this hike because it seems very dangerous Mm -hmm. um but also like i think it would be really cool i did watch Watch one video of a guy who went hiking up onto the summit and it, it's beautiful in the summer. <laughs> in the summer. It's still freaking cold, obviously. Elevation. Mm-hmm. And it's New Hampshire. So yeah. even summer in New Hampshire is like still cold. Still cold to you know us. I've, I've never been there. 
I've been to New Hampshire once in the winter. Oh. We went to Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont, and it was beautiful, but I thought I was going to die. Of coldness. Of coldness. And that right. was just me riding in the car with a heat on. So. <laughs> uh, there's a book written by Nicholas Howe. It's called Not Without Peril, 150 Years of Misadventure on the Presidential Range of New Hampshire. And this is profiles of 22 adventurous yet unlucky climbers. Uh, and that's over more than a century of exploration, recreation, and tragedy in New Hampshire's presidential range. 22? 22. Only 22 of the 161. Okay. And I don't think it's only Mount Washington. I think maybe there's some other... Because it's like there's this area called the White Mountains, and mm-hmm. Mount Washington is the highest in that area. So seems like a, it might be a good read. I am not going to talk about any of those stories. Okay. I'm just going to go through 22 stories like, today. Number one. And we're going to start. Yeah, but it seems like that's a, a, a nice book, a nice, a good book to read to learn a little bit more about how treacherous that area is. What not to do. What not to do. Yeah, for sure. All right. So today we are going to talk about a woman named Pam Bales. And I got this information from the article that Angelina sent the um, Reader's Digest article, which actually was originally posted on this like union website, kind of random. But also, um, I'm going to get some of this information from a backpacker.com article that Pam Bales wrote in October of 2020. And it is entitled Mystery on Mount Washington. Cool. Actually, backpacker.com also had a lot of like trail where you can go and here's this trail and here's where you want to go. And this is how many miles and then you take a ride and that kind of stuff. Advice. A lot of advice. That's great. So Pam starts out this article. She says, a feeling of peace washed over me as soon as my boots hit the dirt. At the base of Mount Washington's Jewel Trail, the October sun felt warm on my bare arms. But having grown up exploring New Hampshire's White Mountains, I knew the conditions up high would be nothing like in the valley. In preparation for a late season ascent of the 6,288 foot peak, my bad, not 4,000. I think the summit, like going up to the summit is 4,000 up. Okay. But the whole peak is 6,288 feet. Sorry. Uh, Known as home of the world's worst weather, I loaded my pack with extra layers and a pair of snow goggles. All right. So she's prepared. Okay. Yeah. So she left her itinerary on the dashboard of her Nissan Xterra, and her plan was to start up the Jewel Trail, go across the ridge south along Gulfside Trail, summit Mount Washington, and then follow the Crawford Path down to the lakes of the Clouds Hut and descend into this ravine, and I cannot pronounce it, so I'm going to skip that name, uh, and then return to her car. And she was planning to do this before some like bad weather had been forecasted later in the day. Okay, so she's going to do this in a day. In a day. Okay. Because I think it is only, it's only, uh, what was it, only like five miles or something? Oh, okay. It's not like super far, but it's kind of steep and treacherous. Um, She always, always, anytime she went hiking, left an itinerary in her car and copies with two friends who are fellow teammates from the all-volunteer Pemigewasset Valley Search and Rescue Team. Oh, okay. She is a volunteer, and at this time, she had been volunteering with them for five years. Oh, so she knows. She, she knows, knows her stuff. Up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I said that right, Pemigewasset. Uh, later, they just call it Pemi Valley Search Rescue Team. So Pemi Valley, easy, easy. Uh, so this story takes place on October 17th, 2010. So at 8.30 a.m., Pam sets up her camera. She's already on the trail. She sets up her camera, and she takes a selfie on Jewel Trail. And she, even though you can tell in the picture, everything is covered in snow, because it's October. It looks like one of those days where it's like cold, but also warm in the sun. Pleasant. And in the photo, she's wearing a tank top. 
it kind of looks like it almost looks like a sports bra like maybe she had a tank top and tucked it under Mm -hmm. light pants hiking boots and then she's got her hiking poles with her the weather that day had said there was going to be a slight chance of showers with highs in the upper 20s wind chills zero to ten winds northwest 50 to 70 miles per hour increasing to 60 to 80 with higher gusts later in the day Oh, that's windy. It's windy. That's crazy. But that's like a pleasant day on Mount Washington. Oh, boy. (laughs) No, thank you. Yeah. So Pam says, I felt strong that day, but could see thick clouds surrounding the top half of the peak. At 5,000 feet, about three miles in, the wind began to pick up around me. I stopped to add a layer. She had a contingency plan in place, though, because she was like, she knew that the weather was going to get worse later on in the day. And she was like, if it gets too bad, and if I don't feel comfortable, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to go back down the jewel hike. Or if she was already too far into her planned itinerary, she would not do the summit. And she would take West Side Trail to Crawford Path, and then down into that ravine back to where her car was. Okay, so it's like a circle. She says snow was blowing in my face as I continued upward, but I could follow this trail with my eyes closed. Above the tree line, gusts raged and the temperature dropped. I told myself if the weather worsened, I would turn back. Returning to my car was more important than making it to the summit. Because she's been on this trail a bunch. Mm-hmm. And she's like, eh, I'm not going to risk my life. Seems like it worsened. Yeah, it was getting it was getting worse. <laughs> <I> was like, <laughs> Already, yeah. At 9.15 a.m., she takes another selfie. She's still on Jewel Trail. The snow is deeper and the sky is now overcast. You can actually see in the picture, it's like opaque behind her. Like you can, the sun is there, but it's not how it was coming through, like direct sun on her. Uh, So at this point, she puts on gloves and a quarter zip fleece top. So her next layer. At 10.30 a.m., she is past the tree line. So now she's above the tree line. She's at the junction of Jewel and Gulfside Trails. And at this point, the weather is getting worse than Mm -hmm. what it's already gotten to. And she adds additional layers. So she puts on a shell jacket, goggles, and mountaineering mittens to shield herself from the cold. And I think she also, at this point, her jacket had a hood and she might have already also put on a hat underneath. So it's like she's sealing all the things. Right. She's heading up the ridge to the summit. And actually, she starts to think like, you know what? This is not looking super great. I'm going to do the contingency plan. So she decides she's not going to summit. She's going to go down and around instead. But then she sees something in the snow in front of her. She sees a single set of footprints and they're fresh. And she's kind of startled by it because she can tell that these footprints are made by sneakers. Like she's wearing full on boots. Yeah. Like who's wearing sneakers up there? Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, "Mm." in one of the articles, it says she silently scolded the absent hiker who had violated normal safety rules and walked on. So she was like, that's stupid. Yeah. (laughs) And kept walking. But the weather has picked up even more. And she's having to look at the ground as she walks because it's just like this. It's just pelting her face. Yeah. So even with the goggles, she has to look down. She keeps seeing those sneaker prints. And then all of a sudden, the sneaker prints make a hard left hand turn off the trail. And she's like, uh, that's not good. And then her rescue training kicks into gear. Um, she's super worried about following the tracks, though, because if she's going to go follow them, she's risking herself, her time on this itinerary. You know, she might get hurt. Yeah. She had this nagging feeling and she decides she's going to turn left towards where those shoe prints are. And she calls out hello. And then she blows her rescue whistle. But the winds are hitting 50 miles per hour. And even with her micro spikes, so she has like the boots with the spikes in them. She's being like rocked by the wind. No way people are going to hear this whistle and 
On the observatory's uh, forecast, they had advised hikers to be careful with foot placement that day because the snow that had fallen between the rocks wasn't firmed up yet. So it was like kind of a new snow. And so if she actually pushed her, punched her foot through the snow or took a misstep, she would end up getting seriously hurt. Mm-hmm. So she decides, okay, I'm going to follow these tracks just a little bit, 20 to 30 yards, gingerly following this track. And she comes around the corner and she sees a man sitting motionless between some boulders and he's staring off into the direction of the great gulf she had said something like it would be really scenic but it was so cloudy and so much weather happening it almost looked like he was looking out over this majestic landscape but you know you cannot see anything so it's like he's just looking into a blizzard and fog and yes wind she comes up to him and she says oh hello (laughs) hello i noticed you're wearing sneakers (laughs) what's going on um he didn't move or react And he was wearing sneakers, shorts, a light jacket, and fingerless gloves. No hat. Oh, my God. No, no weatherproofed whatever. Was he covered in blood from murdering somebody when he escaped? (laughs) No. Okay, good. Uh, She said he looked soaking wet, but actually it was like a frost that was covering him. Oh, my God. He almost had like a wax figure look that was in one of the articles. That's how she described it was like he was slick looking, but it was the crust of of like frost and ice. Oh, his head was bare and he, he had a day pack with him, but it was empty. So she could tell, though, that he was alive because his eyes tracked her. So he's sitting there almost completely still. And then his eyes track like move to see her and then he moved his head just a little bit she knew that he could still move the rest of his body because when he did that um patches of frost started to break off of his oh my god jacket yeah and it made kind of this crinkly sound so now she's like fully rescue mode Mm-hmm. She's like, what's your name? And he doesn't answer her, of course. She said, crouching beside the man, I looked at his thin jacket, t-shirt and soaked pants. It says shorts in one article of pants here. I don't know. How could someone hike up here so unprepared? He was breathing, but his skin looked like porcelain and he wore a vacant expression. This was bad. I grabbed my extra layers and changed the man out of his wet clothes. Then I tucked hand warmers, hand warmers inside his shirt and fed him from my thermos of hot chocolate. He sat passive and slack, hardly acknowledging my presence. It felt strange to treat a patient without knowing his name, so I decided to call him John. Good choice. (laughs) Good name. (laughs) Uh, The wind was picking up, creating a swirl of blowing snow behind the boulder where we'd taken shelter. We needed to get moving. John had revived somewhat and could walk behind me on the hard pack. My tracks from the way up had disappeared, but I could make out the depressions from my trekking poles, and I followed them like breadcrumbs. We descended slowly. The footing was slippery and laden with precarious boulders. I worried about John's flat sneakers. I sang 60s hits to remind him that I was there and to keep my own morale up. Periodically, I'd ask a question, but at most, John would only grunt. I couldn't understand why he'd ventured up high on a day like today, dressed as he was. Once, he sat down in the snow, appearing to give up. We're in this together, I scolded him. At one point, he had said that when he left Maine in the morning, so he was coming from Maine, it had been 60 degrees outside, and he had planned to follow the same loop as Bales. Mm -hmm. And he said he was familiar with the route and had lost his way when the visibility got rough, and then he just sat down. Oh. But it's like if he were familiar, he would have known to prepare himself for weather. Yes. Yeah. So on their way down, they only had the one headlamp between them. And because it took a while for Pam to get him moving, it was actually already getting dark when they started that descent. They finally, I mean, it took them six hours to get from where he was back down the same trail. Uh Um, And they got there just before six o'clock. And it's like October 6 p.m. in New Hampshire is dark. Yes. Yeah. And awful. And cold. Even her climb up to the spot where she found him had taken four hours 
and then another six hours to get back down. Wow. So once they get to the car, Pam starts her car and puts his frozen clothes inside the car because he didn't bring any additional layers even in his car. So he had no other stuff with him. So she takes the clothes that she had taken off of him, right? Because he's wearing her clothes, which mm-hmm. I hopefully fit. I don't know. I guess they fit. It, she put them in her car, tur- blast the heater. And it takes about seven minutes, I guess, for the clothes to thaw out and dry. I don't know how hot that heater was. But it seems like that seems really quick. To, they were dry enough for him to get back in them. Wow. That yeah. Xterra. <sighs> Serious. She asked, why don't you have extra dry clothes and food in your car? And he said, I just borrowed it, the car. Uh, once the, the clothes were dry, he put them back on and returned the ones that Pam had given him. She asked him, why didn't you check the weather forecast dressed like that? Uh, he didn't answer her. He just thanked her, got into his car and drove across the empty lot towards the exit. Um, this was, like I said, around 607, 610. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At that time, on that day, Mount Washington Observatory clocked the highest wind gust of the day at 88 miles per hour. Whoa. Yeah. So then Pam's just like standing in the parking lot. What the bleep just happened? She's like... Bye. Um, okay. okay. Who? What? <laughs> what? Pam says, at home, I wrote an email to my SAR teammates recounting the rescue. We debriefed, examining our protocols, and speculating about the events that could have led John into such distress. But there were so many questions. One week later, Alan Clark, he's the president of that rescue group. He gets a letter in the mail and a donation that's tucked inside. And I'm just going to read the letter to you. Okay. I hope this reaches the right group of rescuers. This is hard to do, but must try part of my therapy. I want to remain anonymous, but I was called John. On Sunday, October 17th, I went up to my favorite trail, Jewel, to end my life. Weather was to be bad. Thought no one else would be there. I was dressed to go quickly. Next thing I knew, this lady was talking to me, changing my clothes, talking to me, giving me food, talking to me, making me warmer. (laughs) And she just kept talking and calling me John, and I let her. Finally learned her name was Pam. Conditions were horrible, and I said to leave me and get going, but she wouldn't. Got me up and had me stay right behind her, still talking. I followed, but I did think about running off. She couldn't see me, but I wanted to only take my life, not anybody else, and I think she would have tried to find me. The entire time, she treated me with care, compassion, authority, confidence, and the impression that I mattered. With all that has been going wrong in my life, I didn't matter to me, but I did to Pam. She probably thought I was the stupidest hiker dressed like I was, but I was never put down in any way. Chewed out, yes, in a kind way. Maybe I wasn't meant to die yet. I somehow mattered in life. Oh. I became very embarrassed later on and never really thanked her properly. If she's an example of your organization slash professionalism, you must be the best group around. Please accept the small offer of appreciation for her effort to save me way beyond the limits of safety. No did not seem in her mind. I'm getting help with my mental needs. They will also help me find a job and I have temporary housing. I have a new direction thanks to wonderful people like yourselves. I got your name from her patch pack and bumper sticker. My deepest thanks, John. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Obviously, that answered all of the questions. Like, why was he up there in mm-hmm. nothing, mm-hmm. bringing nothing? Yeah, He wasn't a serial killer. <laughs> he was not a serial killer. He was having a really hard time. Yeah, he was having a life crisis. And- yes. Wow. Ken Norton, he's the executive director of the National Alliance of Mental Health, New Hampshire. He had heard this story, was super struck by it. And he also happens to be an avid white mountain hiker. And Ken said, quote, John borrowed a car, got in the car, drove from Maine to the Amanusuk. That's the word I couldn't say earlier. (laughs) Amanusuk Ravine. Hiked to this spot where he felt like he was going to be past the point of no return, contemplating this the whole way. 
And along comes this guardian angel out of nowhere who force marches him down the mountain, he said. It is important for, for Pam and others to know that 90% of those who attempt suicide don't go on to die by suicide. John drove away that day and didn't drive over to the other side of the mountain and go up the other side to finish what he started. He drove home, and a week later, he felt the need to write in an anonymous way to the president of Pemi Search and Rescue to share his immersion back into society and his life. His story represents hope and resilience. Pam says, some people have asked me if I tried to find John. The thought of searching for him felt wrong. As I've reflected more on this story and its relation to the issue of mental health, my response to the question about finding John has evolved. I have, in fact, found John. He is very close to me. John is my neighbor. He is my good friend, a close colleague, a family member. John could be me. I never found out exactly who I helped that day, but I like to think he's out there somewhere enjoying his second chance. (laughs) Pam's just like the best. She's the best. Yeah. And I think about like that she had changed her course a little bit because she wasn't going to summit. She went on a day that the weather was not going to be great. Like Like, Exactly. The whole, from the beginning, I'm like, why is she even going? She just liked to go there. She liked to go there, but why go? On that day. On that day. Yeah. And like no one else is really there. There's no one else hiking with her. Right. It's like the chance, the chance that they encountered each other is insane. And you don't believe... (laughs) Just saying. <laughs> and outside forces or guardian angels or whatever you want to call it. Sure, 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 sure. No, I mean, it's touching. It's a really touching story. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to downplay any of it. I, it is mind boggling. Yeah. And even as far gone as he was that she had everything she needed to get him out. Well, to warm him up. Yeah. And get him down the mountain. And the hot cocoa thing that's like you want to get some sugar in his system to warm him up that way. One of the other articles mentioned that maybe she had these energy cubes. She's been um, a volunteer rescuer for five years. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of from that training and her experience, she automatically knows the the basics for her, her, her emergency preparedness kit. Yeah, she's good to go. And not even that she's good to go just for herself. It seems like she was, you know, just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Wow. It's like you prepare for yourself, but then on top of that. Is any regular person... Mm-hmm. may not have brought those things no yeah. i think about all the hikes that i go on i mean i don't go in places <laughs> that have this kind of weather but like i frequently don't bring enough water even though i bring a lot of water yeah. because for me i need a lot of water yeah yeah i'm always like sad because before we're even done with the hike back i'm already out of water and i bring like two bottles and my uh what's it called your camel pack camel pack yeah yeah it's crazy <sighs> but she like had all the stuff so many layers, her poles, all the... And I think about that, yeah, she brought her poles with her. She had everything. I saw recently there was some kind of like Twitter thing where someone made fun of a hiker who had poles. Like, oh, if you need poles while you're hiking, you shouldn't be hiking. Like that kind of thing. And I'm like, whatever. Douchebaggery. Yes, I'm kind of doing the um, the, the eye, face. the face, the like, the like ugh. Because those poles, you know, her tracks had already... The wind and snow had already kind of covered up her recent tracks. And she needed to see, and it was lucky that she had those. Anyway, I wanted to share a couple things real quick about things to do to be a helper. So this was on backpacker.com. It was, it's just like skill school is what it's called. Be a helper. Prepare yourself to respond if you come across a hiker in danger with this advice from Lieutenant Chris Camejo of Pemi Valley SAR. He says, uh, come prepared, carrying the 10 essentials, navigation tools, sun protection, layers, flashlight, shelter, first aid supplies, fire starter, knife, extra food, and water. 
That is the best way to be equipped to help someone in trouble to avoid getting in danger yourself. That's a lot of stuff, but I get it. It's a big backpack. It's a big backpack. Yep. Assess the situation. If it's safe to leave and go find cell service, prep the victim with shelter, extra layers, food, and water to ensure comfort until help arrives. If the affliction is minor, or if you're too far from cell reception to seek help for a time-sensitive injury, you may need to evacuate the hiker without help from search and rescue. Prioritize your safety. We have a saying in the search and rescue community, Kameo says, don't make somebody else's emergency your emergency. If you jeopardize your own safety, it's not good for you or the injured hiker. And I think that she assessed the situation and she was like, this dude's going to die. If I leave him here, no matter if Mm -hmm. I start a fire or if I do anything, he's going to die. Yeah. The weather's too severe. She's like, the best thing we can do is I get him warmed up enough so he can move and we just get down this mountain. Before it gets dark. Before it gets dark. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So actually on backpacker.com, they have like, you can sign up for these like newsletters and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. there was was a link in this article about layering, like the school of layering. And they have like a whole, a whole like manual that they'll send to you, which, so I signed up for it thinking that the manual was going to come like immediately, but it hasn't yet. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It was like, check your inbox or then, but it has not shown up just to give you an idea of what they'll give you. Uh, the beginning of this little thing says wearing the right clothes for the conditions makes you happier, more comfortable in your surroundings and ultimately safer. Master the finer points of humankind's most important apparel strategy with help from one of the generations, this generation's most intrepid explorers. So it's a guide from Eric Larson. He is the only person to stand at the North and South Poles and atop Mount Everest in a single year. And I'm like, have we talked about him before? The name sounds kind of familiar, but I don't know. So it's his guide, I guess, for making sure you you layer because he hates being cold. Yeah. He's kind of an expert. Um, mm-hmm. So it's probably a really good thing. It's something we don't think about out here mm-hmm. at all. Mm-mm. I think I think about like, how can I take layers off without being inappropriate? <laughs> how can I get almost naked? Because right. I'm so without, hot. Yes. It's so hot. Can the ice cubes last? Just long enough so I can put them on my neck. and. What is going to be the most comfortable thing I can wear covered in sweat? You almost want to sweat more here so that when the wind goes by, it cools you down. I was giving a talk to some kids at the wildlife refuge back mm-hmm. when I was there. And yeah. I had this one of our refuge, you know, we have uniforms. Yes. And one of the shirts I was wearing, I was standing out on the beach talking about sea turtles. Yeah. I was so sweaty that the whole front of my shirt, it was one of those shirts that shows sweat. Yes. And I was like, why would you give these to us? They put them in those like light tan colors. This light tan uh. and the sweat. And this kid walked so close to me, like no, you know, like so like right I just looked down and he's like, did you just go swimming? (laughs) I was like, oh, move away, child. (laughs) Back up. Back Back up. up. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, you can go on backpacker.com and get this guide. There's also a lot of other guides they have, apparently. Maybe there's one for hot weather hiking. Probably. So I do have an organization to support, Jen. Oh, I'm excited. It is the Pema... Pem, you cannot even Pema say Wagasset, it. Pemi Wagasset. That's really wrong, I'm sure. How did I say it earlier? I don't know. The Pemi... Not going to say the full name. Valley Search and Rescue Team. P-V-S-A-R-T. You can go to their website at www.pemisar.org. And this is a volunteer organization that Pam... Is she still there? She's still there, as far as I can tell. It formed in 2005. So actually, she... Because this incident happened in 2010. Uh-huh. She, start, she started with them when they started the organization. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so they are a volunteer organization formed in 2005 to assist with woodland searches or for lost or missing persons and with carryouts. It provides support 
to the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, which under some kind of crazy title has controlling authority for all woodland searches and search and rescue services in the state of New Hampshire. PV SART responds only to requests from um, New Hampshire Fish and Game or other public safety agencies. The primary response area for the team is Grafton County and the western side of the White Mountains. So they promote hiker safety by providing trained speakers to address local school groups and other organizations and by posting safety information and resources for hikers on their site. A membership is open to all hikers 18 and over in good physical condition who live in the local area. So you can contact them. If you live in New Hampshire and you want to go work with these guys, like, yeah, go to their website and mm-hmm. you can contact them to join. They do have a donation link where you can provide donations for um, what they provide. Very cool. That's such a good story. Yeah, I it's um, it's like heartwarming. It's very heartwarming. It brings together, you know, nature and hiking and also, you know, mental health mm-hmm. and suicide prevention and that there's always a light somewhere you just hopefully it can find you yeah yeah. and pam was that light she was that day Mm. so thank you angelina for that share when she sent it i was like jen don't read this (laughs) (laughs) because i read it and i was like oh that's kind of a little like a little bit twist ending like, yeah, I just expected he was a super unprepared hiker. I'm glad. I'm that so she glad got he wrote the letter. Yeah, to answer some of those questions. Yeah, I can see where he was embarrassed at the end of that story, where she was. He just like got in the car and left. He was like, oh, "I got to get out of here." Yeah. So Jen, yeah, here we are at the time of our story where we talk about emergency preparedness kits. They have the ultimate emergency preparedness kit, like the real kind, not with all the silly stuff. Like, we. honestly, you just need Pam in your emergency preparedness. Kit. I was thinking, so that was pretty much where I was going with my thoughts on that is you need the qualities that Pam had that day. She mm-hmm. wasn't, there was no judgment. She was just direct and let's go and wouldn't take no for an answer. She sang songs. She kept him moving. She sang um, Elvis songs. I love that. I feel like you need to have the quality that she brought that day. It's mm-hmm. just that she just has a beautiful heart. Yeah. And I think that's what you need to bring with you everywhere. Because mm-hmm. like she said, it's not that she needs to know who he is. Right. And search for him. It's in everybody. Like you need to have that for anybody that you see around you. Give them that time and that persistent nudge in the right direction maybe i like the part of the story where i think from her perspective she was you know he sat down and he was just like i can't and i think that's the time when he was contemplating like how do i i'm gonna try and get away from her but i shouldn't because i but also he had a good heart he knew he was thinking of her he's like i don't want to drag her her into the you know he didn't want her to get hurt Mm -hmm. or killed by trying to save him and so and maybe him realizing that about himself as well Mm -hmm. made him like okay I'm, I'm okay. It's okay. Things are going to get better. They always get better. At the extreme lows, there will always be something better. Yeah. I think that um, that was a really nice story. I love it. A beautiful heart. A beautiful heart. Yep. That's what you need to pack everywhere you go. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> Is it creepy? <laughs> uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> no, I like it. A beautiful like, heart. Oh, you mean like a real heart? Like, like a, a real, real heart. beating heart? You just like pull it out. Everyone's I'm like. I'm here to save you. Dun, 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 <laughs> They're all like. Dun, dun. Ah. No, being a good person. Yes. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for that story. It was... You are very welcome. It was so good. Would you like to... Shout out. Shout out our new patron. Thank you so much, Val. Yes. And actually, Val is super cool. I believe 
Val will be sending us some information to put up on our artisans page because mm-hmm. she has two sites. One is Illustrated Garden. If you go on Instagram, mm-hmm. she teaches how to draw these amazing birds and nature and nature. It's so cool. Flowers, any kind of um, butterflies. It's so beautiful. Her stuff is so, we've been just like loving it. We've been following her for a long time. And so she actually has a new online sketchbook store. It's open. You can go to the link on the profile on Illustrated Garden, or you can go straight to it. And it is called Bindweed Sketchbooks. Mm -hmm. And she has, so they're basically salvaged books and vintage print goods reborn as artisan sketchbooks. And they are freaking gorgeous. Yeah. They're so nice. So much talent. I'm just so stoked that she wants to be a uh, a patron. Thank you, Val. We really appreciate you. Yeah, you guys go support her Instagram pages and her new um, sketchbook store and i you can also buy prints from her right on illustrated illustrated garden yes yeah yes or take one of her classes Mm -hmm. and she has that like every so often uh, what kind of bird is this like she'll draw the bird but not put the colors in yes and then she'll be like what bird is this megan always goes nuts trying to figure out what kind of bird it is yeah i'm bad at birds so (laughs) we're both pretty bad at birds good times good times thank you so much val for becoming a part of our nature nerd family we have our um new bonus episode coming out So go check that out. It Mm -hmm. is dedicated to another one of our patrons, Brian. It's his episode. It's Brian's episode. (laughs) He doesn't know that yet. He's going to love it. It's great. So yeah. And if you would like to become a patron, check out our website, click on our Patreon link, or you can go to our link tree on Instagram and check out our Patreon that way. Other ways you can support, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker, possibly two if you send us pictures of your pets. Fill out the contact form on our website, or you can just email us at you're gonna die out there at gmail.com and send me your mailing address. It's that easy. You can also support us by checking out our sponsor links on our website sponsor page. All of our sponsors are eco-friendly, zero waste. You will get discounts using our discount codes and the links that we provide. And you can also support us by following us on Instagram or Twitter and listening on any platform like Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Oh, and if you have ideas for stories or you saw some interesting news or some science news, feel free to send us an email or send us a DM on Instagram. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. What does it sound like? I mean, I always played with roly polies. Or pill bugs or whatever, which oh, I know God. it's like maybe slightly different, but probably the same-ish. I didn't know that they were just vibrating toots all over me. Maybe that's what happens when they roll up into a ball. They're like, Whoa. <laughs> It's like a defense <laughs> mechanism. Let's start protesting termites. Seriously. Way to go. Get rid of all the termites. Jerks. <sighs> we don't need them. <laughs> yeah, we can't really compare right, you know, yeah. poor termites. They're like, but wait, we're supposed to be here. Like, it's fine. This is the amount of methane that's supposed to go out. Like, we're just living our lives. It's all that fiber, Jen. I know. So much fiber. Weren't there some Vikings there at some point? Probably. I mean, (laughs) is anybody watching Vikings Valhalla? I still have to watch the first one. Oh, my God. I know. I'll get on it. Okay.
Sounds very like balderdashy. Play balderdash ever? I did play balderdash. Remember you're like, the words? You're unlocking a memory for me right now. <laughs> that I completely forgot. Yeah, it was so fun. Because it was like... You would get a word and then it would have the real meaning and then you would make up other meanings and then people would to guess, which, guess one. which one was the real. Right. So everybody would make up oh. a definition and then somebody would read it off, all of them, and then whoever guessed like the actual definition. I love but that if somebody game picked your definition then you get a point right or something like that yeah that's amazing yeah it was i was really good at it we should plan that (laughs) plan that play that we should can i ask you something sure are there is there wildlife in that area like yeah no like dangerous wildlife in the valleys there's bears okay yeah yeah yeah. that was one of the things i listed i think jen if you had listened earlier sorry uh yeah moose and black bear are there Moose, man. Moose. Scarier than black bears to me. Uh, I feel like black bears are more skittish. Moose are like, get out of my way. Moose are like, give me your cliff bar. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the hot chocolate now. Uh, It's, It's curtains for you. All right. So...